Hello everyone, this is Rick Mercer, the Communications Manager for the Town of Garner. And uh, we are here with another uh, one of our occasional episodes of the Garner's Station podcast. Uh, you can get this wherever you get your podcast by just searching Garner Station. Um, some of y'all uh, check out our episodes on YouTube, on our, our YouTube channel, which is youtube.com slash townofgarner. Uh, I am really happy and proud that we are able to have with us today Mary D. Williams, who is an adjunct professor at Duke University's Center for Documentary Studies. And Mary is a resident of Garner, um, longtime resident, born, born and raised. Is that right, Mary? Yeah, we moved to Garner when I was six. So, yeah, I lived on Jones Sausage Road. Great. So, uh, you know, I'm really happy to have a chance to talk to you today. I, I know a little bit about your work and we're going to talk a lot about it. Um, but, uh, but this is this is exciting. So um, let let's um, let's go into it. You uh, you travel the country as a performer and a uh, and a teacher. Um, you have been teaching uh, courses, a course, one course in particular uh, through the through Duke's Center for Documentary Studies. You team teach with uh, Dr. Timothy Tyson. Uh, we're going to talk about that. Um, and so there's lots to talk about. Let's get into it. Um, Tell us a bit about your background in music, um, you know, starting from, from when you were really young. Sure. Well, first of all, Rick, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Um, thank you. It's an honor to be with you today and your audience members. I'm very excited to be, uh, um, as they say, a Garnerarian uh, since I grew up here. <laughs> so um, Joan Sausage Road is where I grew up. And it's just um, I had a wonderful childhood because there were so many teachers um, that live on that road, um, so that impacted my life. So, uh, but growing up, um, my parents, John and Ellen Dobbin, uh, my brother who uh, passed away eight years ago now, um, we we grew up on Jones Sausage and uh, rode horses, mini bikes, bicycles. Had a great great time. Um, went graduated from Garner Senior High School. Um, but as far as my background in music. Um, in all honesty, I have no professional training at all or no vocal training. I had uh, two teachers at where the uh, you're going to talk about the show a little bit later. But every time I rehearse in that auditorium, I think about Miss Bethel, who was the music teacher uh, for chorus uh, during the time that I was there in elementary. But it, I really didn't get impacted or changed by music until middle school. Uh, I was kind of clowning around in the hall. And during that era, you and I both know that if you got in trouble, um, you everybody knew. You know, your parents, like, by the time you got home, your parents already knew because your teacher or somebody in the neighborhood, because everybody was so closely knit. Uh, so I, I was kind of clowning around, and Miss Emma K. Bird uh, kind of caught me in the hallway. And so she looked at me very sternly. Um, and said, you need to be in chorus. Well, first I was relieved because I wasn't in trouble, but um, that to me was the beginning of um, of a change in my life in its entirety. Uh, I started singing in the chorus, but she took special attention um, to me. She would take me to her home and help me prepare for competitions. So she would train me, um, and when I say train, um, my memory, thankfully, is pretty sharp. Um, so what she would do was beat out the keys of a particular uh, song that I was using to compete, and I could remember it. And um, at that time, I was a very sharp first soprano. 
And um, so she would literally go through the song just over and over repetitively so that I could remember how it needed to go for competition. And um, that's how um, she would position me to, to, to uh, compete uh, for different things. So I won several awards. And from that point forward, um, I just fell in love with um, not so much as the gift, but um, the experience that when I was given the opportunity to share my gift, of what was going on with me at that time um, and what this exchange that took place between me and the audience. So um, things just kind of began to happen. Um, I went to Fayetteville State University and I didn't like it there. And um, so I ended up coming back home and working and then started a family. And so um, all along different things were kind of just happening. Um, word of mouth, um, opportunities. Um, so it just kind of, it was destined uh, for me because I didn't have any type of manager. I was reading books like um, This Business of Music and trying to learn as much as I could about um, being a performer and um, those kinds of things. But um, I just start, start, opportunities started presenting themselves. And so I just started going from there. And um, and and you perform you perform mostly uh, in in the gospel tradition. Is that is that fair to say? That's very fair to say. Yeah, I come I start with the spirituals, um, which are um, just coming up out of the south. Uh, those all of those songs came out of the south and then um, migrated. Or and as my grandma often said, um, from her mouth to my ears. So these songs were just transmitted orally um, throughout African-American, um, our culture, in terms of the interpretation of the songs and how they were passed. So I do sing only gospel, even though Tim tells me all the time I could make a boatload of money singing the blues. I'll stick with what I know. So, so you, you do, you do trap. We're going to talk a bit in a minute about uh, your work with Tim, with Dr. Tyson. Um, and uh, you did eventually go, you went and got a, a bachelor's degree in American studies from UNC Chapel Hill. I did. Uh -huh. I did. And um, I love the way, that, the, the, the way you posed the sentence or the question you, when you sent me the questions. Um, I, I like the way you posed the question, but the, I, it was kind of flipped. Um, the life that I was already living, life itself is the influence um, that really propelled me to go back to school. Uh, I had been performing and singing all over. I had been to Las Vegas, um, Chicago. I've been singing gospel music, um, New York at, comp not competitions, they were gospel fests. Uh -huh. But uh, believe it or not, I didn't fit. I didn't fit because I was singing um, the music that was birthed out of slavery. So when you talk about putting me in with contemporary artists, I did not fit. So what ended up happening um, as I was migrating, learning more about the music of our, of who we were as a people, uh, people that came out of the tribes, the Yoruba tribe, the Ibu tribe, Wolof, that were transferred over onto this land in the bottom of a boat. As I began to research those things on my own, I understood that it was a part of folklore, African-American folklore. I understood the importance of it, but I also understood, and I tell young people this all the time, 
I understand too, to be received and to be heard, you need your ticket. And so uh, I was working at the Department of Social Services um, as a Medicaid case manager. I worked there for 30 years. And um, in between that, I was singing and performing for the governor, whoever was in office, uh, for the commissioners, whatever. And um, I realized that because of the kind of music and because I needed to be heard, I needed to go back to school. I needed to, to get my degree. So I got my undergraduate um, in, um, in American studies. I had and my two uh, minors are in history and African-American diaspora. And then my master's is in folklore. Okay. And, and, um, and so to, you know, you've been traveling, you've been performing and educating. How, how do you, how, how do you kind of blend those two, the educational piece and the performances? And, uh, you know, you, you go out to different audiences. I think you, you go out to, you know, you reach younger students and you're reaching adult audiences. How do you, how do you make that all work? Well, um, one of the good things about it is, is because I sing acapella a lot of times, which I will, I'll be doing some of that uh, during the performance next week. But when I start talking about the music, it's so ingrained in terms of our history. You can't have, you could not have had a movement without the songs. So when we learn these songs, um, what I end up doing was learning how that when we place these songs in history, then we actually, I actually set it up telling the historical context. And then I literally start, after I set the song up, then I begin, they say that freedom is a constant struggle. They say that freedom is a constant struggle. They say that freedom is a constant struggle. Oh, Lord, we've been struggling so long. We must be free. That song was used in the civil rights movement. And as they did stand-in, sit-ins, and sometimes the marches, they would use that. But they talked about the struggle of freedom. And in that, as they... Um, were persevering through all the different types of opposition. The freedom struggle, um, then we're struggling so long, we must be free. So what I do is I incorporate the music. I, it's, it's interwoven uh, in my lecture. And then what I um, do when I, I can't do it now on the social, on these mediums now, because different internet and all these different kinds of issues that are delaying sometimes what we may say or, 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 or when our community is involved. So, but I get the uh, audience to sing along with me. So I'm not just performing, but I give them an opportunity to have this exchange, understanding that this song built a community, these songs built communities. So when you're in that room, when you're um, standing there or trying or marching or whatever the situation, those songs were such a way of protecting and guarding and helping in, against the, the oppressive issues or times that they were faced with. So that community was built. Well, the same thing happens in our classroom or if I'm in Paris or wherever I may be, when this, the audience begins to um, 
um, have this exchange, when we begin to have this exchange with each other, then that community is built. That's great. And and I do want to jump in because maybe I, I think maybe I neglected to mention this at the outset, but you will be performing um, a, a GPAC from home uh, concert uh, next week. We're recording this on January 14th. That it will be January 21st, Thursday evening, January 21st at 7 p.m. And uh, folks can tune in for free virtually by going to the Garner Performing Arts Center uh, Facebook page where it will be live streamed. It will also be live streamed, I believe, on the town's YouTube channel. Uh, again, you can search Town of Garner to look for that. Um, and we'll have some information about that in our, in our YouTube and, and Facebook posts that we put out about this. Um, and, and, you know, gosh, you've been all over the world. I heard you reference Paris. And, and what are some of the, um, you know, what are some of the surprising things you've, you've learned from audiences' reactions and uh, some of the, you know, inspiring things, some of the things that really stand out to you? Uh, one of the things that, in, that uh, let's start with what stands out. What stands out is what's, uh, that how important this music is and how much it's needed in the times in which we live, that it is not lost um, and how it is so um, important to apply it because of the times in which we live. Um, things that have surprised me um, is I've, uh, everybody, uh, y'all, everybody knows Tim Tyson. So Tim is white and everybody knows that. Um, some people think he's not, but he is. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, um, but one, some of the things that have surprised me is that when he and I travel together and we do presentations, the response um, that I've gotten from people um, before he and I do our lecture, I'll lecture and do the music and talk about um, this, this community and what we're trying to establish. And then he may talk, he'll talk about his book uh, entitled Blood Inside My Name. Um, what happens is this opposition that he and I are often confronted with, or more so me, in certain circles. Um, I'm often surprised at how after the lecture and after we've done our presentations, how um, that community that gets developed, it changes the whole aura or atmosphere in the room and allows people to actually come back and, and literally say to me, you know, um, you know, I've heard like for one example, one comment was, you know, you've literally changed my my thinking when it comes to African Americans. Now I don't know what that meant. I didn't ask, but the bottom line is there was a change. Something happened, and that's what normally these conversations. That's what we want to happen. We want a change to come. So yeah. I think those are the kinds of things that really kind of surprise me. But I, you know. Yeah. Um, so, so let's talk about your, your collaborations with, with Tim a little bit. Um, he, Tim is a, you know, he's, he's a professor, history, history professor, uh, has taught at Duke. Um, I, I think he's taught at, is it University of Wisconsin previously? That's right. I don't know all of Tim's biography. I know Tim a little bit from way back, but, um, right. so, and, and, uh, he, he wrote the, the really highly acclaimed book, Blood, Blood Done Sign My Name. It's, 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 sort of autobiographical um, and, and partly about a, some incidents that occurred in Oxford, North Carolina. Um, 
and it was turned into a feature film, and I, I believe that you had a, a, a role in that, a, a, a performance role. Um, but let's talk about the course that y'all have taught. It, it's built as sort of a community-based course that y'all teach in Durham, and it's available to students at North Carolina Central, Duke, UNC. And is it also available to, or it, can members of the community sign up and, and, and take the course as well? Yeah, they can through continuing ed. They can d t sign up through a continuing ed at um, at Duke. Uh, we've been teaching, actually, uh, Tim and I, again, traveling all over. Uh, if he were here today, he said I even took her to Iowa. But anyway, <laughs> uh, but we've traveled all over doing presentations and talking about this difficult, the topic of race. Um, and so we've, we've done it um, for years now, uh, almost 15 years. Um, and uh, our course really was birthed out of that. Uh, we had been traveling around in the Center of Documentary Studies. Tim was at Wisconsin, as you stated, and then hired at Duke. And then when um, uh, some of the, uh, our actual, at that time, Tom Rankin, our, who actually was the director, he um, sat down with us. And because he had seen the powerful effect of our presentations at different times, um, we began. He wanted us to start thinking about developing a course that would uh, do really the same thing: bringing students, community members from all walks of life, and having them in one location at one time, and doing a complete thirteen-week course. So Tim and I got together, we began to uh, get our syllabus together and work on how to develop this, how to make this, uh, what we call patchwork quilt come together. And um, so when we established it, and it, there was the momentum behind it being established was at that time, the lacrosse case. Yes, yes. at Duke. At That's Duke. right the Duke lacrosse case. So when that was in the paper and so much was going on with that, that's when we really realized that, yes, this is a good time to start this course. So we taught with uh, our opening classes were at Hayti Heritage Center in Durham, which was at, which is, I guess it's considered, well, it was a church of course, but it was the oldest church in Durham. Um, but the movement came out of that church, came out of Ada. That's where the movement was, uh, they, they got their marching orders during the time. So we thought it was a perfect location. So our first class, um, we had 350 students, our first class. And the beauty of the class was, is that we had um, Vietnam veterans sitting beside undergraduates. Um, everybody, because we had a system where we'd have everybody, even though they came at, together, they had to be separated and set up where they were with people actually that they did not know. So it was a wonderful thing and it's been going on now. We've moved our location. We're on the um, Tobacco Campus we, um, in the auditorium. That's where we're housed now. But um, it, it came at a wonderful time and it's still necessary because we talk about the politics of Southern history culture. Um, we talk about um, the central thread um, that that um, we, we often see when it comes to history, particularly coming up out of the South. 
And so what I do is I talk about, um, I lecture and talk about to the students about this music that actually shines its light on every aspect um, from slavery all the way up. Now in the course, during the course, um, they are introduced to um, blues, jazz, um, of course, gospel, the spirituals, and then gospel, and this transition. Um, so they're introduced to all uh, kinds of music. I just perform gospel music, but they, they're introduced to all formats because they need to understand how this music evolved, how the blues evolved out of this burden. Um, and so these impulses that the, that these different genres offer. You've got the blues impulse, the gospel impulse. So how these things um, really are strategic in our history and how you see that thread throughout our history. And again, it can, it's applicable today. Yeah. And, you know, so why do you, and this is not real, you know, both in subject matter and in, in y'all's methodology, how you, how you teach the course, it's not uh, maybe a conventional course or one that the kind of course that is typically offered at universities. Why, you know, why would you say that this is an important addition to, um, to other university course offerings? Well, I think our course has been successful because one thing, the beautiful mix that we have, because we also have continuing ed students, which are, and we also have community um, school students like Durham Tech, Wake Tech, so you've got such a vast amount of experiences in the room. So when we start uh, giving assignments, um, they actually get to, for example, uh, one of our one of the assignments that our students treasure is that during um, the assassination of Martin Luther King, they have to do an essay on what was going on in their actual hometown. So we have students from London, we you know because it's Duke, UNC. So we have foreign exchange students. And it is amazing to have them bring back the newspaper clippings and articles attached to their essays about what went on all over this world during the assassination of Martin Luther King. Then that leads to other conversations in terms of what's going on now and how that um, this fabric of a culture of so many people, how that we can build a better community. So what we're doing is like we're employing people to, to, to understand our history because first you've got to understand it. And then after they've completed the course, we're asking them to go out into their communities. And, you know, if you, the term, I guess I could say evangelize, to, but to share this news about, um, or this information in terms of the culture, cultural differences, but that we're really more alike than we are different. So I think that's what makes it so informative. We give, and then we use a lot of um, North Carolina authors. Uh, David Shushelsky, we have material from him. David Shushelsky actually um, comes to class. Um, we have lecturers. Uh, believe it or not, when um, Franklin, um, Dr., uh, I can't think of his name, it just escaped me. John, uh, John Hope Franklin? Hope Franklin, John Hope Franklin. He actually visited on one occasion. Um, so we have uh, we had authors from all over. We the, we use different disciplines. They have to do oral histories uh, interviews, which that's a course that I teach in the summer and do I teach intro to oral history. Um, but we introduce students to that where some of them really get the opportunity to understand that they have actually had a family member 
that was a part of the movement or something like that. Uh-huh. And it, it just like an unveiling. So it's really important. Um, the reason I know it's impactful is that during the time that we were teaching at Hayti, the district attorney of Wilmington literally came to the class at that time. His mom was one of our students, uh, Ben David. And so Ben um, worked, we worked tirelessly with Ben David and other members of Wilmington. So for four years, we taught the course in Wilmington and it was titled Wilmington in the um, Wilmington in black and white. Oh, and I, there's a lot to talk about there. <laughs> yes, and it was. Yeah. Wow. That, yeah. Yeah. So it's, it, it it influences um, people. Um, and again, we go we start with slavery, the emancipation. We actually start, you know, where you know where our South, um, our South, you know, and then we always end up with folks that are coming from a deeper south, uh, even now. So that's how we end our course, talking about the different things that those from a deeper south are coming in and what they are facing or experiencing, it was it was existent here because of those that came over in the bottom of the boat. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah, that's how we end up bringing in awareness as to what these issues are uh, going on today and how history plays a part in that. So Mary, you, you work uh, and teach at the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke and um, you teach, you reference at least one other course that you teach there. Can you tell about uh, what all you do with the center and, and your teaching and, and just briefly maybe about the mission of the Center for Documentary Studies? Well, the mission of the center um, is really about engagement, and but it does so much in the community, and it is exactly what it says, um, documentary studies. So it documents through art, um, but um, through film, and um, the, there's an opportunity there through Wesley Hogan, who is just uh, brilliant. She's just, I love working um, with her. Um, but it's all about breaking down barriers. I think that's really one of the main things that she um, has tried to to really, uh, really um, enforce with us as faculty, where we're um, breaking barriers, coming together as a team, and making a difference in community, making a difference in terms of uh, what Duke University is all about. Um, so I, I would say breaking barriers is, is probably a way to just sum it up. Um, what I do is, again, I, we teach one course. I teach the South and Black and White. But in the summer, um, I teach a um, summer course entitled um, this Intro to Oral History, which I uh, enjoy so much. Um, but oral histories are so important. If we think back historically, uh, journalists actually, of course, always used interviews and things of, you know, people that were, you know, somehow um, important, whether they were actors or politicians. But the thing about oral histories are, is that you're talking to people within your own communities. Um, I've had a wonderful opportunity to interview folks that, um, actually I'm doing a blog on my website. Um, it'll be coming up in the next month or so on quartet singers. Um, that's a big part of African-American tradition. And um, so my father was a quartet singer and there are uh, several of them that are still alive today um, that were, you know, some of them were sharecroppers 
and they found themselves uh, um, being a part of quartet groups. So these are part of African-American folklore. And these are things that were a part of the tradition of African-Americans. So um, that's what the oral histories do. The students get an opportunity to go out and interview, um, I hate saying regular everyday folks, but they are just, you know, people like my mom or my grandmother or, you know, people like that and giving them an opportunity to share their contributions depending on the subject matter. So, um, so that's, that's an actual part of that. And documenting is a big part of that. And so the, the, the center is, is all about documenting, whether it's um, videography, um, again, photographs, whatever. So it's been, a, it's been a pleasure being a part of, of, of something that's really evolving. Yeah, well, that's great. And you are, um, well, I did have a question. I did have a follow-up question about that. So you say quartet singers. Was that, is that tradition? Is it, is it a cappella? Uh, some are a cappella and some are um, musicians. And so what I do is I juxtapose that to some of the greats. For example, Sam Cooke. That's actually how he got started. Um, he, he came up out of that. So I have a couple of interviews with um, Jojo Wallace, who um, is um, traveled the entire world. Um, I've got actually information after interviewing him that I donated to UNC Wilson's library because as a quartet singer, um, not a lot of education, but the quartet style um, with the, the um, uh, just guys in their suits and musicians, some were just vocal where they, it wasn't even, it wasn't, I, want, I don't want to say it was similar to barber, barber uh, shop quartet, but I guess that's a good juxtaposition so people will understand what I mean. Um, but yeah, this was a thing that was a tradition with African-American families. Um, when we got out of church on Sunday, when we got, by the time we got back home, it was at night. My mom was frying chicken and doing everything Saturday night because after church, my dad would have to meet the guys and there was some program here in Wake County or Johnston County where they had to go and they had to sing. Were they getting paid? No. But did they love it? Yes. And so it's a big part of it. And so we've got people like Mr. Suede Exum, who's still alive. My father, John Dobbin, still alive. And they sang with the, um, there were groups like the Highway QCs, you know. And so these were guys that were emulating national recording artists. They never recorded a record. They never were on the radio. But they had... Um, what they needed and it gave them such dignity. Some of them didn't have a lot of education, but the music and what it did for the audiences and how it brought the African-American community together and how it allowed them to know who they were and identify, it was a way of identifying. So um, my blog, I'll be putting that up a little bit later, but I've got several interviews. But the students, back to the students, they get an opportunity to choose a topic. Um, we'll make what we normally do at the beginning of class is uh, choose a topic. After they do that, then I give them all the fundamentals um, in lecturing, how that they need to go about it, you know, the different things, the aspects of getting an interview, and then they have an option. It is remarkable for um, students that that come from um, that are foreign exchange students. They are blown away because uh, one of my students actually shared with me. 
um, that she's from Japan. And she was so, um, she was very nervous when the course opened because she said in their culture, when it comes to education, the students cannot have discourse in the classroom, that they have to sit and just receive the information. And so she was afraid she was going to fail because she was like, I, I can't do this because this is not a part of our culture. And so um, she was so excited and did such a great job with her or with her interviews and um it just made a big difference it made a big difference after she got an opportunity it gave an opportunity to understand more about us and as far as north carolina and our culture that's really cool that's a great story you're working on a play about mahalia jackson is that right yes. um, um i i well i hesitate to ask but i i reckon i probably have to to ask you to get to tell us briefly uh, Talk to us about Mahalia Jackson. I think maybe some of our younger viewers or listeners in particular might not know as much about her. So tell us a bit about her and, and then why you, you decided to, to do a play based on her life and work. Okay. Well, first of all, Mahalia is my all-time favorite, all-time favorite. Um, I don't even know why um, this passion to learn about her and I don't even know where it came from. I truly don't. I just know that as far as I can remember, I've loved Mahalia Jackson. Um, so as far as her backdrop, um, she was, uh, her mother died at a, when she was very, very young. And her father was a, a barber and a preacher. And um, she ended up having to go live with her aunt as a cleaning woman. She did laundry. And um, she would go to churches because, of course, that was a part of her culture. And she would literally just stand up and just belt songs. Um, but her voice, um, there are, are journals written that talk about, it was like her voice, like the building was shaking uh, because of the power um, of her voice. It was so infectious. But what she began to do is as she began to travel and become more recognized, she became a major um role um playing major played a major role in the movement a major role uh mahalia jackson was uh very wealthy she owned uh several salons she owned a florist and um she was a performer in one of her books it says that she um they would hire her to sing at funerals a lot she would do the hair of the deceased and provide the flowers for the funeral. So she and then perform. So she, wow. She was making money from all levels. <laughs> One stop shop. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, so anyway, Mahalia would um when she became involved in the movement, she would give financial um support constantly. But one of the beautiful things about Mahalia is is that through her opportunities, like when Martin Luther King came on the scene she would they just became they became close and he literally um would literally call her especially during bouts of depression he would call her and to talk to her and she would literally sing to him on the phone and she would just give money to support whatever the movement needed um if you listen very closely to the March on Washington, the documentary or the audio, if you listen very closely, 
Mahalia sang one of the open songs. I'm gonna move on up a little higher, meet my friends and loved ones. Move on up a little higher. She was saying she sang that song during the march. Well, that song had a twofold meaning. When the song was written, the the writer of the song, which was Herbert Brewster, wrote the song for Marian Anderson. But her voice just couldn't do it like Mahalia. But when he, when Mahalia got the song, she understood the entire concept. Brewster had said that if um, that people would hear messages through song, sometimes better than through a speech. And when he wrote the lyrics to that song, he wanted black people to know, you're going to move on up a little higher in education, move on up a little higher in our culture, move on up a little higher. And that was what he wanted to provoke in the listeners. Well, after he, she sang that song at the Lincoln Monument, um, she sat down kind, right kind of behind Martin Luther. He had come to the podium. He was speaking. He had already started speaking. When he started speaking, everybody could feel or he could feel the audience was leaving him. Uh. That, that it was like what he was saying, it wasn't grasping. You can hear her in the background saying, tell him about the dream, Martin. Tell him about the dream. And that's when he immediately started talking, giving the I Have a Dream speech, which he had given in Rocky Mountain, North Carolina prior to that. Yeah, that, yeah that's an amazing piece of history. Um... Yeah, she's um, very influential. Yeah. Well, well, what? So, what do you think her music and her life um, have to say to us today, right now, right now in this present moment? Oh wow! Yeah, it, it it's saying the same thing that these um, cultural differences, that the the white supremacy, the racism, that we need to leave those things at the door. In Carnegie Hall, when she was singing at Carnegie Hall, because she sang for presidents, as you well know, Mahalia, um, her voice was just a unique gift. She sang at jazz festivals, um, somewhat like myself, just sticking to the gospel, um, but um, understanding that that is the music that gives life, understanding that um, one of her um, quotes is, is that it keeps you looking upward. Um, it, you know, it's not like the blues, she always says, it's something that it talks about the bottom and um, it doesn't give you the light. You're not looking up. But she said the gospel encourages you to look upward. So when people would go in, it was segregated. A lot of the concerts were segregated. But when they came to see her performances, they would sit with each other. Sometimes one audience would not leave to allow the next audiences to come in because they were so enraptured by her voice. So what was important for her was for a body of people to come together. That was very, very important. And I think that her music did that to people. It was something about um, this release that came up out of her um, that was so infectious. It allowed people to think and really be changed because you're dealing with them not just mentally, but you're dealing with them emotionally. So I think that that would be the message today. We've got to lay down our differences and come together as a people and build a community um, that is truly representative of who we are.
Yeah, yeah. Um, I wanted to turn and, and uh, talk br uh, briefly about your, uh, you worked in some film. Now, you worked on the, the film version of Tim's Blood Done Sign My Name. Uh, what, what did you do there? Uh, I was in the movie. Um, I, I had several roles in the movie. I was with Nate Parker, Parker, Layla Rashad. Um, so I got a chance to be in the film, but I also did the soundtrack. So when you hear a lot of the music, that's me. Um, some of the freedom songs during the marches, uh, that was um, that's me. So I'm on the soundtrack. And then I did uh, a film for Lifetime. I did a cameo for a Lifetime film entitled uh, The Wronged, W-R-O-N-G-E-D, Man. And so I did a cameo uh, performance there. So it's been great. It's been awesome. <clears throat> and and now, next, you're going to be at Gardner Performing Arts Center. So um, let's talk about that. Uh, and you you are going to be collaborating with Neil Padgett, whom some of our listeners and viewers will know um, as, as the former uh, president of our Chamber of Commerce. Neil's active in his church, and uh, he's also a pretty accomplished musician. So do you want to talk about the collaboration that y'all are working on? And again, that is going to be next Thursday, January 21st. 7 p.m. virtually, folks can tune in live um, for free on Garner Performing Arts Center Facebook page and, and check that out. Um, so tell us about that collaboration. Well, it was one, it's been wonderful. It's been absolutely wonderful. But um, it was so funny because Neil comes in with really prepared. You know, he gives me all of these, uh, all these music sheets. Um, because we, you know, we talked on the phone and uh, when we decided to do, we're going to each do a segment. So he'll have like a 15 minute segment. I'm going to do what I do in the classroom. I'm going to do a small lecture of about 15 minutes with Music Incorporated. And then our final, uh, the last part of the show, we're doing uh, a portrait of Mahalia, um, which when I told him about that, he got really excited. And um, so which that he all he had to, I mean when he said he was excited to do um some of our music I'm like hey yeah I'm I'm all in so uh but I am not vocally trained I don't know any music so and Neil is trained I mean like really trained and so uh it's been uh we have really come into a place where um I was telling him Tuesday we rehearsed on Tuesday and I was like He's really coming into, you know, we're coming into this groove, um, the two of us where we've got connected now um, because because I'm not trained um, and because of the way my culture is in terms of when the music comes up out of me, you know, you, there is no song without the human body, right? There's no song without the human body. And so when a song comes up out of me, um, an elderly lady, she was really about 100 years old when she told me this. But she said, Mary, if it doesn't affect you, it's not going to affect anybody else. It's not going to affect the art of the listeners. So um, in my song selection, I've made sure that we've had those kinds of songs. So it's been a, a, a birthing between the two of us because I don't go by the book. I don't play by the musical rules. I just sing on how it, it fits me at the moment. And so it's been a wonderful collaboration because he's learning me. I'm learning him. Kevin um, will be doing the bass, stand-up bass. He's wonderful. Very young man. Uh, he's a public school teacher. 
um, but plays the uh, stand-up bass professionally also. But uh, we have come into this niche, and it's very exciting. We've been having a ball in rehearsals. We really, really have. Um, he's learning that I don't know what I'm doing, so it works. Because that way he kind of like, oh, okay, she's gone here. Okay, gotcha. So I kind of go off the grid, but it's all right. That that's cool. That that's probably a good learning experience for Neil too. We know how he's 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 always super prepared, yeah. and so to maybe yeah. pull him out of his comfort zone a little bit's probably been great for him. Yeah. You're exactly yeah. You know, <laughs> it really did. It took him out because when I I told him I said, well, I'm going to use the the all the stuff you gave me, but you know, I use the lyrics, but I have no idea. And so, um, I, you know, and one of the things about you know musicians is that. Um, um, for me, because of uh, the way I, that I sing, um, you know, he just, he's pliable. So it, it's been working. It's been working out really well. I'm very excited and I'm looking forward to Thursday and I hope everybody will join us. It's, it's going to be a great show. Great. And again, that is, uh, we are recording on January 14th. It will be a week from today on January 21st. That's a Thursday evening, 7 p.m., live stream on Garner Performing Arts Center's Facebook page. Um, you'll also be able to find it on the Town of Garner's YouTube channel if you want to go there and find it. But it's been so great talking with you, and um, we're, we're so proud that you're you know, a Garner, Garner resident and representing Garner all over the world, it turns out. Yeah. Well, thank you all again, Rick, for having me. It's been great um, talking with you. I um, I love, I, I try to make sure that people know that I'm from Garner. It's ironic that when I go places, they always, because I teach at Duke, I guess, but everybody always says when I correct them and say, I am from Garner, um, they're like, oh, oh, I thought you were from Durham. I was like, no, I am from Garner. <laughs> I'm very proud of my hometown. That's great. We appreciate that. And uh, yeah, keep spreading the word. Uh, I did want to mention, so your your website, if folks want to learn more, it's, it's marydwilliams.com. Is that right? And Mary D. Williams, all is one word. Just type it in marydwilliams.com. That, is that where folks can find your blog posts as well? They can find the blog posts there. They'll be able to, they can actually order music from there, CDs. If they'd like, they can order CDs from there as well. Great. Yeah, I do have a CD entitled Blood Don't Sign My Name. All right. Well, there you have it. Um, it's been a pleasure talking with you, and I hope we get to meet in person once we get past all this COVID mess. I know. Yeah. I know, but until then. Until then. Take care. Be well. Um, well, folks, that was it for this uh, episode of uh, Garner Station. You can check it out wherever you get your podcasts, and you can find other past episodes and uh, you can also find um, the recordings on our, our YouTube channel, Town of Garner. Um, thanks, Mary. Take care. Be well. Look forward to seeing the performance next week. Thank you. Make sure you get back with me. Let me know what you think. All right. right, Will do. Take care. Bye.